welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. We believe all survivors should have access to justice and resources to help them heal from the trauma of sexual abuse. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. Join us as we talk with survivors and various community members who are taking action to normalize the conversation around sexual abuse in the pursuit of justice and healing. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, welcome to Support for Survivors. I'm your host, Shaughnessy Terrell. Joining us today is Boz Tavigian. Boz is the founder and former leader of Grace, an internationally recognized nonprofit organization that equips religious organizations with the tools they need to correctly respond to allegations of sexual abuse and educates them on how to create safeguards to protect children in their communities. As a renowned expert on sexual abuse, particularly within faith communities, Boz has been widely quoted in media outlets such as the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Huffington Post, and NBC Nightly News. Boz is also the co-author of the Child Safeguarding Policy Guide, a handbook for religious institutions looking to improve their child protection policies. He's also published scholarly articles such as Predators and Propensity, the Proper Approach for Determining the Admissibility of Prior Bad Acts Evidence in Child Sexual Abuse Prosecutions, and Catching American Sex Offenders Overseas, a Proposal for a Federal Mandated Reporting Law. Boz also wrote a weekly column for the Religious News Service. From 2008 to 2020, Boz served as a professor at Liberty University School of Law, where he taught employment law, criminal law and procedure, and child abuse law. He is currently an adjunct faculty member at his alma mater, Stetson University. Boz is also the founding partner of Boz Law in DeLand, Florida, where he represents survivors of sexual abuse in cases throughout the United States. Oh, yeah. Okay. If you can't tell, Boz is a pretty big deal in our world. And to say that I am nerding out that he's here would be an understatement. So thank you, Boz, very much for being here today. Wow. I, uh, this, this is probably going to be then a profound disappointment for you. (laughs) (laughs) I sincerely doubt that you definitely undersell. There's no doubt about it. Honestly, it's good to, good to be here. And thanks for inviting me. I, I, uh, I didn't know about your podcast until we met and you shared that with me. And, and, uh, I just, I think it's what, this is an incredible idea that's turned into a reality and a resource and, and especially for survivors. So thank you for taking the time to do this because I know it takes up your time, but um, it's, it's really, really helpful. Well, thank you. It's super, super kind and we're happy to do it. And really the hero of this podcast is Jamie. It's not me. She does all the real work. Um, but I just am so pumped to have you on here. You have, you just have such a cool life, I think, and such a cool history and, and you have taken your own personal experiences and knowledge, your specific knowledge and turned it into um, just a really noble pursue in your career. So let's, why don't we talk about that? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your upbringing within the church and how, how you do have that very special, unique knowledge? Mm. Yeah, I, um, I grew up, um, yeah, I won't give you the, the real long and boring story, but I was, I, I do one part I, I always appreciate sharing because that's something I'm sort of proud of is, is that I was born in Switzerland and my dad was Swiss. And, and so I still hold a Swiss passport today and my wife has one and all my kids have one so they're we're all dual citizens and i i've told them to pack their passports in a very safe place in case we all need to disappear but, um, <laughs> i wondered when i and by the way i hope i did pronounce your name correctly yeah, I tried you did great. good good yeah. uh and i did not know it was swiss well actually chavidjan is armenian and oh, okay. uh and but my that's a whole other story but my grandfather <laughs> 
escaped when he was a child uh, from the um, first genocide of the 20th century. And uh, his oh, whole wow. family was massacred, except he and his sister and his mom, and they escaped and eventually ended up in Switzerland. But anyway, oh my gosh. Um, anyway, I was born, yeah, you know, I grew up in a, a conservative Christian home, not fundamentalist uh, by any means. Uh, I would say it was sort of conservative evangelical. Uh, I think the, the aspect of my life that's been very unique, which was really a, a big blessing for me, was that my grandfather was uh, Reverend Billy Graham. And, wow. and so that was, you know, when you're growing up in it, you don't really, mm-hmm. I mean, it's sort of your normal. So it's not until you get older. I think one time he invited me to go to one of his crusades and, and I was walking with him um, on the, uh, to the platform. And I, I, I'm this little kid and I'm looking at a stadium full of people and wow. it hit me. I think that's okay. My, Daddy Bill, that's what we used to call him. Uh-huh. Daddy Bill's not like, I don't think every grandfather's like <laughs> And so, you know, what it did is it gave me a, a unique insight into sure. the evangelical culture and world. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I say to this day that at least the the daddy bill that I knew was genuinely one of the most authentic and humble people that I have ever encountered, which, which has really been helpful to me because, you know, when you do the work I do, you can become, and reason, good reasons to do it is become cynical about so much of the church and, and church leaders and people who become very powerful and well-known and pretty soon they're, you know, they're not going to be caught driving in anything less than an $80,000 car. And, mm-hmm. and having grown up and walked alongside of my grandfather and saw that he was not like that mm-hmm. is always, even to this day, a reminder that there are genuine Christian people out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we're all messy and we, you know, by any means, he wasn't a perfect person, but it's not all one big facade though so many people have experienced that for good reason. And so anyway, that's been helpful to me and, uh, you know, didn't know too much about the issue of abuse, especially within the church growing up. I had a family member who had been sexually abused. And so I was obviously aware of Mm -hmm. of that, but it really wasn't until I became a prosecutor back in the early mid nineties that I really came face to face with this, this horror. And, Mm -hmm. and really it was through my work as a prosecutor that I began to see how much of this, these crimes and these offenses were connected to faith communities. Mm-hmm. And that really was troubling to me. I, I thought, man, you know, either the abuse occurred within the church or it was perpetrated by somebody within the church, or maybe it happened outside the church and they brought it to the attention of yeah. ministry leaders and they didn't do anything. And so I just remember when I finished my days as a prosecutor, I thought, man, I have learned so much because I was a division chief, so which meant I was overseeing literally thousands mm-hmm. of sexual assault and abuse cases. And I thought, what can I do with what I've learned on the front lines to maybe train and equip faith communities on understanding this issue, preventing it, and then mm-hmm. responding well to it? Because so many people understandably have fled from churches and other faith communities, not only because of what because of the abuse itself, but oftentimes, even more oftentimes, because of how that faith community or church has, has responded to it. Oh my gosh, um, isn't that the truth? So we started, you know, back in, so long story short, in 2004, we started Grace. Uh, and really, that was just a um, trying to think through bringing together a group of multidisciplined experts who all had some unique experience in addressing this issue, but also had the same burden for faith communities. Um, And so we did. I mean, in in the years prior, I'd been introduced to a number of really amazing people who many of them still sit on our board today. 
And we met at a cramped office of a, one of my heroes, Dr. Diane Langberg, in her cramped office in Philadelphia, starting Grace. We didn't even know what, what <laughs> we were really doing. We just knew that we wanted to educate. The problem was initially the church, especially the Protestant world, wasn't really asking us to educate them. In fact, they were spending most of their time pointing <laughs> their fingers at the Catholic church saying how bad they are. And look at them, we all sitting in the room. <laughs> yeah, we're all like, uh, Protestant world's not any, much, any better, quite frankly. Right. And so anyway, that's I can explain a little bit more about grace, but that's sort of the, the beginnings of it, sort of coming from you know, my, my faith evangelical background and then encountering uh, and becoming uh, on the front lines of addressing and responding to sexual abuse, especially sexual crimes, and then moving out of that going, okay, how do I take the two, how do I integrate the two to make faith communities, to help make faith communities safer spaces for children and vulnerable people? And that was really ultimately the, the objective and mission of Grace. That's got to be a cool moment when, you know, people say that, that moment kind of when they figure out what it is they're, they're here to do. And yeah. you kind of had that, I don't know, at the time envisioning at least how you had that light bulb moment, you're like, okay, I've got this unique knowledge of the very framework and all of the intricacies that go along with a lot of the faith yeah. communities. And then also you have this also very unique skill set in terms of prosecuting child sex offenders and kind of those two worlds coming together. And I love the image of you and the other people meeting in the cramped room because so many labors of love begin out. They start out that way. I think that, you know, it starts with this little idea and then you have no idea that it's going to turn into something like it has. And why don't you talk about grace a little bit, just so the listeners know uh, what it is, because absolutely cool, cool, cool thing you did. Yeah, I mean, we like I said, we were initially just going to go edu- write some articles, go speak at a conference, maybe go to a denominational conference and speak. And we did a little bit of that at first. But, you know, again, in the early 2000s, what was really the focus of this issue was the Catholic Church, primarily mm-hmm. up in Boston. And yeah. so there weren't a lot of Protestants talking about it. And we really didn't figure out specifically what we were going to uh, what we were going to do or what we were called to do until probably 2006, 2007. Uh, where I was approached by a, uh, an organization called New Tribes Mission. New Tribes Mission is a missionary organization. They've changed their name since, but that really prided themselves on sending missionaries to where nobody else would go. It's like the Indiana Jones <laughs> of missionaries. And, and they, had had a, um, they had had a boarding school in Senegal, West Africa in the 90s, and there had been allegations of abuse. The missionary kids would go to that boarding school. The missionaries would be the teachers and the administrators of that boarding school. And uh, some of those young people had stepped forward and said they had been physically and sexually abused. Not much had happened. And now these missionary kids were no longer kids. They're adults. And a lot of them were really pissed off. So they came to us and said, you know, we, we would like to have somebody investigate this. We don't think we should investigate it ourselves. Would Grace consider doing that? Well, Shaughnessy, I had never thought that gra- the idea of investigating abuse issues as far as a part of who Grace is, was never even on our radar, our radar screen. Mm-hmm. But as they asked us that, I start thinking, well, wait a minute. I was a former prosecutor. I've got a couple other former prosecutors on the board. Like that's all we did was investigate. You're like I know um, how to do this. <laughs> yeah, we we're like we're we're actually equipped to do this. So we agreed, and our the Grace board was the investigative team, and we agreed to do it under the condition that whatever we did, we could do whatever we wanted, that they couldn't control it, and that the final okay. report would ultimately go not only to New Tribes Mission, but to the reported victims. And without any, you know, cleaning it up first or whatever, like like we gave, literally we gave the report to both at the same time. 
Um, wow. And they and agreed to it. They did. They, That's I think a unique. Later on, they wished they had not agreed <laughs> yeah, to sure. it. But they did agree to it. And, you know, without going into all the details, I, I think Diane Langberg, who was part of that team, said that we all left a little bit of our soul behind in that yeah. investigation. And my eyes were opened in, in new ways to the horrors of this offense and the systemic cover-up and minimization of these offenses by organizations. And then, you know, when you're interviewing and have the privilege of interviewing survivors, you, when you hear it firsthand about what, it's one thing as a prosecutor, when I hear about what the perpetrators did and the victims timing, but when you're interviewing people in an investigation like this, and you're hearing firsthand, not only what the, the abuse that was perpetrated, but the statements and the actions of supposed Christian leaders within the organization and how they minimized it, turned their back on them, and sometimes even villainized mm -hmm. the survivors, it really stirred us up and said, okay, you know, I think there's something here. I, I think we, our purpose has become even more clear as an organization. And so we did, we, we finished that report. I told my team, we'll never be asked to do this again because we were pretty straightforward. New Tribes Mission initially loved it. Then they backed away, said, well, wait a minute, why did you say good things about us in the report? And I said, well, that's <laughs> not the purpose of it. Right. Um, but then we got hired by another one and another one. And, and so, and our, probably our largest to date was we, we were asked by Bob Jones University, which is a, you know, sort of a stalwart fundamentalist mm -hmm. university in, in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, to do an investigation, independent investigation on any and all disclosure of sexual abuse by students. And I said, you, got, you guys really want us to do that? And they said, yeah. And I, I think they thought there might be two or three in their very naive perspective, thought there might be two or three. And, and the 200 page report later, uh, you know, we, we turned it over. And I think that one of the things I've learned, Shaughnessy, with these investigations is I'm more often than not disappointed with the institutional response yep. to these investigations. We give them recommendations and all those things. We almost decide to stop doing them. Because I'm like, okay, they're asking us to do it. We do it. We give them this. And they're they're basically beginning to become defensive about it and criticizing us. And there's no change. And then it hit me one day that I think the thing that's most important about these types of investigations is not necessarily the outcome, but the process. The process mm -hmm. where our team met in person and meets in person with survivors, oftentimes who've been who've been ignored for so long. I received so many emails after, especially Bob Jones saying the meeting with your investigative team was a turning point in my life because that was the first time a group of people who professed to be Christians listened to me and didn't take out mm -hmm. their Bible and start looking up verses and preaching to me. Or, or the fact that you all didn't even pray with me was like really amazing because like, that's what, you know, that's what Christians do when we get together. Mm -hmm. We just start, we start with prayer mm -hmm. and um, you know, that has continued with grace. So that's, to this day, a big part of the organization is what we call institutional uh, assessments, which is coming in and doing, you know, if, if, for example, somebody comes forward and says, I was sexually abused by my youth pastor 10 years ago, you know, we will, if the church organization comes to us, we will do an independent investigation into that. But we really focus, we focus on the underlying offense, but we really focus on the response of the institution. Because if, as you know, in the criminal world, the prosecution and law enforcement will investigate the underlying crime oftentimes. Right. When they're investigating the actual crime, they're not really investigating the institution and no. what the institution knew or what they didn't know and how they responded. So, so that's what we do. 
And that's a big, huge part of, of the organization. The other part of the organization is what we call our safeguarding initiative, which is what if we help train and equip faith communities on the front end and train and educate every demographic within that community on these issues? Maybe we would have less need to do investigations on the back end because they would actually either prevent the abuse or if the abuse happened, they would respond in such a way that that there wouldn't be a need for an investigation to evaluate their response. And so that's, both of those are the big two pieces of the organization today that our team is, is up to their eyeballs with, with on both ends, which, you know, in some sense is good because I think the big difference between now and 10 years ago is that yes. we're getting a lot more calls. People in churches are realizing, you know what, we're not the experts. So let's call those who are, or at the very least, you might have a pastor going, I don't want to be on the front page tomorrow. Right. Exactly. So let's call grace. And quite frankly, I don't care what their motivation is for reaching out mm-hmm. to us as long as they are teachable and listen and make the changes that are needed. Absolutely. I want to come back in a couple minutes to the overall plague of clergy abuse and tie in the work that grace has done. But I think this is a good segue into what you do now, because you, what you do now is exactly what I do now. And I, I love that grace has kind of got that two prong approach And, you know, I think the investigations are also safeguarding as well, just because just like you said, there are some church members, you know, they really do want to do the right thing. They just have been completely in over their heads and scared, I think, for a long time. And then you've got others who I think that they think they're protecting the church by covering things up, which they are not. They're actually making things worse for themselves. But just like you said, whatever the motivation is, what I have found and why we do the work that we do is that a lot of them, they're not going to do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do. So somebody's got to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what led our paths to cross and specifically in the Emmanuel Baptist Church up in West Lafayette. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's sadly, and every case is unique and creates its own profound pain in the lives of, of those who've been hurt. And in that case, was was no different. I mean, in that case, you had, you know, uh, clients whose children were sexually victimized by uh, a minor within the church. And the minor's parents knew that there were issues, not only with that particular minor, but, you know, they had received complaints with regard to this particular minor's conduct. And, and nothing really was done. It wasn't, it wasn't taken seriously. And as a result, that young person was allowed to continue to be placed in positions where he could abuse others. And he did. And he, mm-hmm. he abused our client's children. Mm-hmm. And, and so if that's not bad enough, even after they learned about this, the clients, you know, went to church leadership thinking and believing that church leadership would be their greatest advocates mm-hmm. and would would walk alongside them during one of the most difficult and low moments in the life of this family. And what they learned was quite the opposite. What they learned was an institution that was much more focused on wanting to protect itself, wanting to explain away the conduct, trying to minimize the conduct to the point where they felt like there was no advocate in the church that they were trying to be their own advocates. And they were always on the receiving end of, you know, you got to forgive and, you know, you got to move on. And that's the damage that, and this is a family that was very intricately involved in the church. This is not a 
outlier family that came to this church on, you know, Christmas and Easter. I mean, this was their church, quote unquote, family. Mm -hmm. And for somebody to learn the hard way, not only that your children have been sexually victimized by somebody inside the church, but then to know that the church leadership didn't advocate for you and didn't walk along this journey with you, but instead try to get you to just minimize it and quote unquote, move on. It was devastating to the point where they had no choice, but they, they had to leave. And, you know, for, for people who've grown up in the Christian world, especially the more evangelical world, church is oftentimes, it is your sole community. You know, you mm-hmm. might send your kids to public school and all that, but, but you are, you're a church Sunday morning, Sunday night, oftentimes Wednesday night, your social interactions, if you're going out to eat with people, it's people from church. I mean, and so to, to have to know that you have no choice but to walk away from that, where you have nothing on the outside, is devastating. And so, yes, these children are devastated by the trauma that was perpetrated upon them. Uh, and, and not only that, but to know even as children, hey, we're leaving the church mm-hmm. because this church is not speaking up for us. And this mm-hmm. church has not been a place of comfort for us, but actually a, a place of, of harm, further harm. It's the layers and layers of trauma and hurt that are caused by that will be unknown, in my opinion, for years in the life of oh. those children. So they reached out to me. I'm a licensed lawyer in Florida. So if I have a case in another state, like in this situation, uh, reached out to your firm. We both belong to an organization of, of lawyers who handle these types of work around the country. And I can just tell you one of my great joys in the work that I do now is is meeting other lawyers like yourself who are also on the front lines doing this work in a different place in the, in the United States. It's like, oftentimes we can feel alone. And then when you encounter local counsel and you begin working with them, you realize, okay, we're all really just one big team. Mm-hmm. We just happen to be in different locations. And so I was, um, and, and really just for your listeners too, because I think it's important and you, I'm sure you share this oftentimes on the podcast, but you know, there, a lot of times people don't know the difference between criminal court and civil court. Mm-hmm. And, you know, criminal court is where the government is the one bringing the case and the ultimate consequence in a criminal case is perhaps the person gets sentenced to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said earlier, the institution, the institution that was that contributed or complicit with the abuse usually is never even mentioned in the criminal case. Civil cases where I share with my clients, unlike the criminal case where you weren't in charge, the prosecutor was. You were the primary witness, but it was the state that was was the one moving forward. In a civil case, it's actually your case, and you're in the driver's seat, and yes. you can make these decisions. That is to so many of my clients is so empowering, mm-hmm. and it allows them the opportunity to take some of what was taken from them is to take it back, and even if they don't, at the end of the day, land with a big chunk of money, which quite frankly, most of my clients, that's not what their no. primary interest is. The fact that they did something, they were empowered to do something, that they were in charge of that process, that they were advocated for, and they actually forced the, the church or the institution to hire lawyers and have to come to the table. It's incredibly healing. It's part of that. To me, it's an integral part of that healing journey. And so I'm privileged, obviously, along with you too, to do this work. And anyway, I could keep blabbing on a lawyer and we just like to talk, but we do, we do. But it's so true. And I always explain to people that, you know, while we're on the same team, so to speak, as the prosecutors, we do have different goals in the end because the prosecutor has different responsibilities than we do. And just like you said, 
you know, they're running the show over there and they have, they have to protect the victim, but they have to protect the next victim and they have to hold the offender accountable. And I always say that, you know, they have to, it's the acute stuff that they're worried about. They have to figure out right now, but we're looking down the road a little bit more and trying to take care of our clients needs down the road. And our, we're holding someone accountable too. It's just a different type of accountability than the prosecutors do, but it's very, very important, I think. And I like that you pointed out that most of our clients, you know, it's not about money and it's not the vast majority of our clients are not litigious in any manner. In fact, I don't know if it's true for you, but anytime that we have spoken with someone and we felt like it was a parent whose main motivator was really just about money, we don't do it. I'm usually having to convince my clients that the money is actually important. Um, yes. And I'm having to say, listen, how much have you spent already on, on therapy? Mm-hmm. Um, how much are you going to have to like, even with the, with our clients in, in the case in Indiana, their children are young. They have no idea what the future holds as it relates to the, yep. this trauma and how it's going to impact them when they engage in, in relationships with other people, when they end up getting yep. married and, and being a parent. I mean, and that could be a lifetime of therapy and therapy mm-hmm. is, is not free. And so mm-hmm. I always ask the client, why should you be digging into your wallet and paying for it? Oftentimes not having the money to do it, which means you just don't do it. Why should you have to be, why should that responsibility be put on you rather than the organization or institution that was complicit and responsible Mm -hmm. for what happened, make them pay for that because there's going to be a cost. And oftentimes when they see it that way, they go, yeah, okay. People have this notion that if I'm asking money, I just sound like the selfish. And I can sort of say, man, maybe it's time to be selfish. It's time to think of you and your self-care and self-care can be expensive and it can take a lifetime. So that's how we plan for the future when we look at these types of civil cases. Absolutely. And it is, it is important. And when you pointed out earlier, I think it's important to reiterate the pervasiveness of this on people's lives. And, you know, I, I didn't grow up in the church like you did. So I think it's great that you pointed out that the church for people who are heavily involved in the church, that's their entire life and the family life revolves around it. And so I, I think about our clients in this case, in the first time um, that I met them with you and I remember looking at them and, and, and I just felt so much grief for them and so much empathy because I could tell, I mean, this has completely upended their world, the world of their children's. They were so committed to this church. They trusted the church. They thought they'd do the right thing and they didn't. And then they, I think they felt like they were forced to have to go down this road and it wasn't something they wanted to do, but I think that they're glad that they did it. And it's going to help them and their kids down the road. But I do think it's important to point out to people that that our clients aren't just money hungry, like money grubbers out there trying to get rich quick. That's not what's going on here ever in my experience. And in, in our case, one of the things that I, I, I admired so much was that the parents were for the children, what the church was never for that family. Yeah. That it was the That's parents were their, the parents were the greatest advocates for their children. And I remember telling them, like, your, your kids may not fully realize that now, mm-hmm. but 10, 15, 20 years from now, you will be their heroes because you did something on their behalf and something that the church should have done, but they failed to do. And so I just, you know, and it, it, it was a bold move. A lot of people in churches today are incredibly afraid of taking on church leaders. Mm-hmm. It takes a good deal of courage to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
And to be able to make that decision with very little support network, because remember their support network had been in the church. So when they walk out of the church, yep. there's very little, they had a little bit, but that's the other thing I would say is the importance of those who are listening to try and be, make yourself available to be a support network for families that are struggling through something similar, because they are often in desperate need of some type of support, because remember, they've lost it. They've lost their primary source of support within the church. And for us to be sensitive to that, we want to do what we can to be that support network for you and walk with you through this journey. That makes all the difference in the world for so many people. So true. And I've had so many clients say, especially in church type communities or just in small communities generally, that at best, well, actually I'll say at worst, you know, people are staring and whispering and kind of talking smack about them or their kid, which is crazy to me when you've got, you know, for instance, a 12 year old, it's like, what in the world are you talking about? But it's the people who are silent too. The ones who are supposed to be your friends are like, oh, I just don't want to get involved. It's the church. Yep. Da, da, da. And you're doing just as much damage to those people. And, you know, it's, and I, and I know, I think that especially in the Midwest, I know we're like, Oh, I want to get involved. It's none of my business. Well, it you is, got, you know, everybody's too nice. Oh my gosh. I know you said that when you were up here. Right? Oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That's a lot, a lot different than Florida, but I, I <laughs> no, I, but I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's, there's so many people that will say, you know, I don't, yeah, either I don't want to get involved or, you know, I know there's different sides of the story and we just don't know the full extent. And I think mm-hmm. all of those responses are very self-centered. I don't want to get involved because I don't want to take the risk of what this could mean for me. Even though I'm watching you, I don't want to get involved because, you know, it's, and you can come up with all the reasons you want, but at the end of the day, the main reason why people won't get involved is because of the impact this might have on them. And that's the problem. Exactly. It's real easy to sit quiet. It's hard to have the courage to support somebody who's been through something like this. No, you're right. Support for survivors is sponsored by the law firm Cohen and Malad. Cohen and Malad attorneys have over two decades of experience helping sexual abuse survivors. We work through the civil court process to get justice and compensation that can help pay for resources needed to heal from your trauma and move forward. We are proud of the work we do in giving power to your voice. And now back to our show. And that is just part of the larger issue, I think, with what we call the culture of silence within a lot of the churches. And it's interesting because we keep saying the church, the church, and it really can be used interchangeably here because it is Protestantism. It is Catholicism. It, it, it looks maybe a little bit different in some of these different places, but we do see it across all different kinds of denominations throughout the country where people don't say anything. And as we've talked about already, I think sometimes it's, you know, fear or not knowing what to do, which is why what grace does is so great with the safeguarding initiatives, because I think a big part of us changing the tide on that is educating people, which is why you and I are here today trying to um, get people a little bit more educated. Let's talk a little bit about how the culture of silence allows this to keep happening. I think it feeds on itself. So what happens is, I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I was helping some people going through a situation involving a very well-known megachurch pastor, uh, Bill Hybels, uh, up in, um, in Chicago. Willow Creek was the church. And, you know, there were adult women who had been victimized by him. And to step forward, to disclose that about somebody like Bill Hybels is people don't understand, fail to grasp the magnitude of that decision. 
And what happened? They did that. The initial response of the church and, of, of course, of Bill Hybels was these people are liars, basically. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching a bit of the, like they had a church meeting where they were basically communicating this. And I remember thinking, wow, any other victim that is watching this, who's sitting in that church, whether they were victimized by Bill Hybels or anybody else, if there was any chance that that person was going to step forward, that chance ended at that moment when they saw what happened to those who did step forward. Mm -hmm. So it, it feeds into that culture of silence. And, and so oftentimes I believe that culture is fueled by leadership Uh because whether we like it or not, leadership and ultimately drives the, the rest of the church. And if they see that leadership is attacking those who've stepped forward, brave souls who made this huge decision to step forward, and then they are vilified. And those are that's a group of people, not just one person. And here you have a survivor sitting in the audience who maybe hasn't shared anything with anybody with regard to what's happened to them. And so they feel very alone as it is. Do you think that survivor is going to step forward on their own? To, to disclose this after witnessing this. Well, we see a lot of that same type of thing in faith communities across the country. It may not be a, a church meeting where they do this, but it's it's how they are responding. When I worked with Grace, I would tell church leaders, remember, there are so many people watching every decision you make right now as you respond to this abuse disclosure. Many of them, obviously some of them are the actual parties involved here. But there are mm-hmm. survivors sitting in your church that you, some of them you probably don't even know are abuse survivors. Mm-hmm. They're quietly watching everything yep. you do. And you are either through the decisions you make, you're either going to bring them comfort and empowerment, or you're going to bring them fear and silence. And I'm convinced a lot of leadership intentionally know that and intentionally mm-hmm. fear and silence because they don't want to hear it. They don't want to deal with it. They don't want to address it, especially if the if the reported offender is a, a well-known or the senior yes. pastor of the church. Because remember, the church, sadly, has become a big business. And mm-hmm. especially these mega churches, they need a lot of money every week. And a lot of times they're driven by that leader, that one person. And if that one person disappears, the, the whole thing begins to crumble. At least that's the fear. Mm-hmm. And so they rather make every excuse in the book as to why we're not going to do something here, which is exactly what happened at Willow Creek. So yeah, that culture just, and so you have to break that cycle. You have to say, listen, A, the church, if we truly preach, believe what we preach, the church, this church doesn't belong to any one person. Number two is if we truly believe what we preach, um, the gospel is all about bringing darkness to light. So why do we preach that from the pulpit, but then do differently in the work and life of our own church. And then thirdly is this hit me a few years ago is the the gospel that's preached is all about a God who sacrificed himself in order to redeem and save the individual. Mm -hmm. So we preach that, but we do the exact opposite. We actually sacrifice the individual in order to protect the church. And so all of those things are antithetical in my opinion, to the very truth of Christianity and, and so that just tells me just because you call yourself a church yeah. doesn't mean that you are a church. I think there's a lot of deep hypocrisy 
among some of these organizations who, just like you said, they, they preach that loving, wonderful message, but then they do not put that into practice whatsoever. And it's no more evident than it is in these types of situations right here, where they will just throw that victim to the wolves and protect the perpetrator. And they, I think a lot of times too, they don't think they're protecting the perpetrator, but they are failure to act and um, not do right by that victim. You're, you're either for the victim or you're the perpetrator, in my opinion, like you're either helping one or the other. And a lot of these churches, unfortunately are helping the perpetrators again, under the guise that they uh, are trying to protect the organization. It's just not, it does not protect the organization. And oftentimes it's not, it's not communicated that we're trying to protect the organization. It's, mm. hey, we are, we are protecting the image of Jesus, we're protecting the mission of the church. I mean, if this church has to shut down or cut its budget because the pastor now is no longer the pastor, oh my goodness, all the good work that we're doing for the kingdom will be set aside. Yeah. Wow. Remember in, in that first case that I had, I was telling you about with New Tribes Mission, I had kids, young adults telling me that when they were abused and they wanted to tell their parents, because their parents were oftentimes thousands of miles away in the, in the field, mm-hmm. supposedly evangelizing uh, people in the country, they would be told, listen, if your parents have to leave their field and come to you and address this situation, you realize that there will be Africans in hell because of that, because oh parents would not have had the opportunity to share the gospel oh with them because they've come to take care of you. And as a result of that, they'll never hear the gospel and they're going to end up in hell. Now, as a 53 year old man, I hear that and go, oh my gosh, that's it's like <laughs> horrible. But think about, think about that, looking at through the lens of a seven-year-old child, mm-hmm. so apart from mom and dad in a strange place, in a strange country, out of no choice of their own. And being told by a Christian leader in your school that if mom and dad have to come address this issue, you're going to be responsible for people in this fiery lake for the rest of eternity. I mean, that's like ludicrous. And then we wonder why the kids were silent and why they were traumatized and then why they were really pissed off when they became adults. I get Mm -hmm. it. What the yeah. And some people are like, well, why didn't you tell? That's why. And we see this, not just in clergy cases, but across the board. And that sometimes it looks different, but within the church context, it's so easy to manipulate, you know, your faith and your eternal salvation and yeah. using that against, you know, victims to, to shut them up. And it works because of course it works. Just like you said, we're, we're adults here. And that would scare the living shit out of me. If someone said that yeah. to me, even now as yeah. a child, my God. Yeah. You can't even begin to imagine the, the impact it has on that child. And it's, it's an extreme form of just manipulation and control. Yep. And, and it's horrific. And I think that, you know, again, just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean you are one, because if I hear that, I remember hearing that going, how is this? How is this even remotely consistent with what I know of the teachings and character of Jesus? Mm-hmm. It's as nothing, it's the polar opposite, but these people are calling themselves missionaries who are saving the world while their own children are being destroyed. It's awful. Just awful. Have you had to deal with any criticism of you either by like, you know, family or people that you knew from the church growing up? Has anybody ever given you any crap about doing what it is that you do? Um, yeah, sure. I do get some crap. I think more often t- times than not, what I might get from people who know me will go, well, Boz is, it's, it's very patronizing. Like, well, you, I know you have that, that, that opinion on this, but you know, you spend your whole life doing this. Basically you're, 
your perspective is a little skewed. So we all know where you're coming from. But, you know, by and large, especially with family, I've been, my family's been very supportive. Now, some family members and more extended family might be a little quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, when you do this type of work, you do get a lot of criticism. And, sure. you know, I think I have to balance between, I always want to be teachable. So if, if I've hurt somebody or I've said something that I shouldn't have said or did something I should have done, I need to hear that and be teachable so I don't do those things again. On the flip side of it, the older I get, the less I care what people think. <laughs> and, and I don't really care that I might offend this particular pastor with what mm-hmm. I, I just I just don't care. So you have to, that's attention. A lot of times attention is really focused on who is coming to me and saying that you said something or whatever setting, the source of that makes a big difference. But yeah, I mean, I, I get it, but I th- that's the, listen, compared to what my clients have experienced, um, I've experienced nothing. I mean, yeah. com- not only were they abused, ignored, vilified, complained against, I've just been, you know, oftentimes criticized. Who, who cares? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, yeah. it's an honor for me to be criticized for advocating on behalf of these heroes. So yeah, it's, it's, it's never really been a real concern for me. I love that. I, I love that. And cause you know, some people do care and I think you're right. The older we get, the less we care and that's liberating. <laughs> and, oh, so I just remember like being younger, being so concerned about what this person thinks. And then it's like, okay, you know what? I don't, it doesn't matter. And it is liberating. It's very freeing because it's like, okay, I can, I can be myself. And in this line of work. Yeah. I mean, I would quit a long time ago if I was concerned with what everybody was thinking because <laughs> we started. And even now, I mean, I, yeah, I get, I can get criticized and I, mm-hmm. I see a lot of it on social media and, sure. and I just, uh, I just sort of shrug my shoulders and it, usually ignore it. I don't get drawn into it because for what purpose, why would I, why would I spend any of my energy or time on this earth engaging with people who are just being critical or hiding behind mm-hmm. a, a keyboard? I just, it's just, yeah, it's, it's not, it's a waste of my time. Absolutely. Yeah. Those uh, keyboard warriors, there's a lot of, and, and you know, cool flip side of that all that is yeah i mean you know social media especially has given voice to so many people who were voiceless and right. it's funny because it forces these people in power to have to listen for the first time because mm-hmm. people have a voice that pe- actually others are listening to and people in power struggle with that so they want to minimize it or sh- silence them yeah. or talk about the evils of social media and and um, it's just like no maybe it's because you're getting finally getting called out and being held to account because nobody around you is doing it but somebody in some other location is doing it online and good because they're bringing light to a dark space. Absolutely. I love that. I always say social media is the devil, but it does cut both ways because it it, it does help in many ways as well. There's one thing I want to make sure that we touch on before we stop. And that is, and you touched on it a little bit earlier, Bob Jones, (gasps) the importance of internal investigations versus independent (gasps) investigations and why it's so important that it's an independent investigation. So the whole term independent investigation sort of become like a sort of a buzz term now, but an organization is faced with dealing with a situation related to abuse. Oftentimes they'll try to get out in front of and say, we're going to do an independent investigation and everybody likes that. And and it's Mm -hmm. a good thing. The problem is nobody defines it. And so what oftentimes happens is you have internal investigations being masked as independent investigations. 
And there's a big difference because the maybe the biggest difference between the two is who controls the investigation. You know, an mm-hmm. internal investigation is ultimately controlled by the institution that is investigating itself, where an independent investigation is the control of that investigation is truly in the hands of a third party. And that third party is given basically carte blanche to go and investigate what they need to investigate. What we do in Grace is we come up with a scope, an investigative scope. So we will work with the organization, um, give and take in, in defining that scope. So that's the parameters mm-hmm. of the investigation. Once we define that scope and that's memorialized in the agreement and everybody signs off, that institution now has to take a step back. They are not going to control the process. All they have to do at that point in time is cooperate with us, providing us with witnesses if we need to meet with people that are still employed by the organization. And they got to pay us because mm-hmm. we're not going to do this for free <laughs> and we're not going to require survivors to pay. So they've yeah. got to do both of those things. But what I'm seeing more and more of are what I would say are more internal investigations Mm -hmm. where the institution still maintains some degree of control. The institution still gets an initial copy or draft of the final report before it's released. Just a lot of control mechanisms. So what I would say is when somebody announces that they're doing an independent investigation, ask questions because what you're trying to find through your questions is who is ultimately in control Mm-hmm. of this process. And if the third party is ultimately in control, then it probably is truly an independent process. If the institution is ultimately in control, then it's probably an internal investigation. Now, I guess one could make the argument, yeah, but if they're paying you, they stop paying. I guess they are in control. And I would say, yeah, if they stop paying, we stop the work. And so they can control, what they can control is cutting or ending the investigation. Mm-hmm but they can't control the process and the content. So they want to end it. And, and Grace has been terminated a couple of times by organizations mm-hmm. who got to the point where they said, hey, you can't interview this person and we don't want you to interview this person. And we said, that's not what we signed up to do. So we either do this or we don't. And one of them, we got a termination, said, well, then forget it. We terminated. I said, fine. And some people criticize it. So why don't you renegotiate and finish it? Not going to do it. We And in Bob Jones, they terminated us about a month yep. before the the report a couple months before it was due and they wanted to renegotiate the contract. And I said, listen, we either are done with this and walk away or we go back to the original contract, but we're not going to renegotiate two thirds of the way through because that will, this entire process will lose its credibility. Um, So yeah, I think I I like that distinction you make. I think just people have to ask questions knowing in, in, in its simplest terms, who is ultimately in control of this process. And that will, usually lead you to help make the determination, is this truly an independent investigation or is this really an internal investigation that's being labeled as an independent investigation? So important to point out because it's very easy to say, oh, it was independent. We hired them. Well, sure. But who's calling the shots? Are you still calling the shots? And I love, that's why I think Grace is such an important organization and the work that you all do there is amazing because you're not willing to put your credibility at risk or your integrity at risk. And you're very upfront about it. And I'm glad you brought Bob Jones back up because my mind just kept circling back to Bob Jones. And I read most of that report. I mean, it's huge. I definitely read the condensed version, the summary, which is it's just so well done, so well written. And remind me, because it's been a little while since I looked at this. I think that there were like, weren't there nine, nine things? I want to say a list of nine things or so that Grace told Bob Jones, like, these are the things that you need to implement. These are the changes you need to make. I want, it's something like that. Yeah, I can't, I, it's been so, I mean, we're talking like 2000. I know, it was a long time, so I'm sorry. Or, yeah. 
Yeah. So I, I don't remember. I, I, yeah, we gave a list of recommendations based upon the findings. And as um, I recall, I think they maybe maybe kind of half-assed it too. <laughs> uh, that's a that's being generous. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I, one of the things on that case, which is interesting, we could have a whole show on that case. But mm-hmm. but you know, one of the unsung, I would say, heroes of that entire investigation was a man named Stephen Jones. Stephen Jones was the president of the school. He was the son and grandson of the, the founder and previous president, and. Stephen Jones, I remember him reaching out saying, we want to do this. And I remember him coming up to Lynchburg, Virginia, because I was teaching at Liberty at the time. And I remember picking him up uh, in my minivan, you know, going to going to lunch. I said, Stephen, this is this is sort of interesting. Billy Graham's grandson is picking up Bob Jones's grandson um, in Lynchburg, Virginia. And I said, but what's really interesting is that your grandfather kicked my grandfather out of Bob Jones. My grandfather was booted out of Bob Jones. Oh my gosh. And I which was probably a good thing. But I, I just said, now I'm, we're, we're going to lunch and we're going to talk about you, you wanting us to do this. And, but I remember asking him and saying, you, you really, you really want us to do this? Cause we're going to go wherever we find truth and wherever the evidence leads, we're going to go. I don't care where that is. And I remember him saying, we have no choice. We have to do this and we're going to move forward. And I always respected that. And to this day, I respect him. He ended up, you know, I, I think that investigation cost him his health and ultimately his, oh his job as the president. But, yeah. you know, that's where, that's one of the things I love about this work is sometimes, you know, I always talk about uh, Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen is a, was a, is a Catholic scholar and he, he talks about him butchering the, the uh, quote, but basically, you know, in the darkness, there are flashes of light and the flashes of light remind us of the real presence of God. And I love that. And, I'm always amazed, Shaughnessy, of where I find those flashes of light in the work I do, because it oftentimes is the most unlikely of people, Stephen Jones, the president of Bob Jones, um, in the most unlikely of places. I remember, oh, this must have been 10 years ago now, I was, I was asked to speak at a conference of missionary kids who had been abused. Many of them I had met on the New Tribes mission case. Mm-hmm. And I spoke, it's maybe a group of 25 of them, and um, they said, Boz, we are we're going to be sitting out under the gazebo afterwards, uh, like, I don't know, like midnight, if you want to come hang out with us. I said, sure. They said, now there'll probably be some drinking and smoking. I'm like, great. And <laughs> I went out there and I told my wife the next day, I said, I'll never forget. I'm sitting out there and I've got a drink in my hand. I actually, I think I had a cigarette in my mouth too. <laughs> I remember thinking like, and I can't even put it into words. I can just say this, that the presence of Jesus in that spot, in that moment was so profound to me. And his reflection in the faces of the precious people that I was sitting with, I have never experienced again inside or outside the church. Wow. And I thought, you know, that's what sort of the, the hope that keeps me going is, yeah, God, I have, I really wrestle with God. I wrestle with doubt. I, re- I mean, mm-hmm. I've added him. I mean, you, you name it. But it's those moments, those fleeting moments, I wish there were more often, <laughs> where I'm reminded, that's where I have my hope that, okay, there was a flash and he's... God's here. I don't understand it all. And I really sometimes pissed off about why, why aren't you a little bit more present so I can see it in the lives of these people I'm mm-hmm. working with. But moments like that was like, okay, wow, uh, that, that helps me keep going. And so, yeah, those flashes of light are real and they are the fuel that at least in my life um, keeps me pressing forward. 
That's really lovely. And what a special moment. I'm with you. I wish those moments happen more often, but when they do, it does, it gets you revved back up, I think, to keep on keeping on, so to speak. And I'm going to circle back to Bob Jones one more time, just real quick, because I want people to understand that the work is still needed and the churches have a lot of leeway. They've got a lot of power. And because of that, there's a lot of room for them to do whatever they want. And which is sometimes not the right thing. And in terms of Bob Jones, you know, Grace went in many years ago, did a wonderful job. And, you know, the hope is always, okay, they're going to learn something from this, but I'm just not sure that as an organization they have, I know that recently within the last two years, there was a new, case where a Bob Jones female student was raped at a Furman party and Bob Jones expelled her because she was drinking alcohol. And so obviously there's still a long way to go in some of these places. And so I'm so glad that Grace is still doing what it's doing. Yeah. And I I think sometimes, and I don't want to select just Bob Jones, but right. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't want to like, just just say in general, sometimes these institutions need to just shut the door, lock it and be done because the, the very heart of so much of their theology and teaching is so toxic mm. and it's like throwing gasoline on these issues. And so even though you might try to say, well, if you do this and you can do this and you do this, sometimes that works, but sometimes I'm like, no, because at the heart of their theology is all of this. And so this is going to still ooze out in different ways. Yeah. And the only way that I know to deal with it is shut the door, but they're mm-hmm. not going to, because if they shut yeah. the door, that means they have lost to the yes. culture and they can't lose to the culture because they're all about bringing God's kingdom into the culture. And they certainly aren't going to shut the doors to God's kingdom as they define themselves, which is really dangerous. Very. And a, that's a very good big picture point for everyone to have. Is there any other kind of parting advice that you have for survivors or loved ones or you know professionals working within this field of sexual abuse? I would say a big thing, I think, is self-care. You know, I, I read, you might've read this too last week. There's a, a lawyer up in the Northeast who does a lot of this, did a lot of this work, was part of our organization of lawyers from around the country that do this type of work who um, committed suicide. And I think people forget that those on the front lines, even the advocates, uh, the friends, the lawyers, secondary trauma is real and mm-hmm. healthy self-care is needed. And so we all want to be sort of the champion and helping these, helping these amazing people, which I get, but if we're not taking care of self, then we're not really in a position to be able to, to care for others. And so I think it's a, it's a constant reminder for me. I try to, I try to really balance, Mm -hmm. try to balance my life. I, you know, if like people ask me, did you read this book or this book about, you know, abuse related issues? I say, no, I, I actually don't read many books at all about abuse. I, usually reading either historical books or biographies or just fictional books. Cause that's, that's part of my self-care. So yeah, well, I know the latest on all the issues related to abuse matters, probably not because I'm not reading all those books, but it's because I'm, I got to take care of myself. Yes, you do. Um, I go to a trivia every Wednesday night at the Ooh, brewery right next door to my office and, <laughs> awesome. the, and our team is called the dipshits. And uh, <laughs> we, uh, we just, we have a great time. And it's like, those are like the, and let me just say, I, I did just on a side note, I was visiting my daughter in Virginia last week and they went to their brewery on a Thursday night. They had trivia. So we were the, I said, well, what's the team name? They said, I don't know. I said, well, we're dipshits Virginia this week and we won. I'm like, yeah. but anyway, just, you know, you, just stuff like that. You have to have 
you have to have some balance and self-care. And everybody's self-care is different. Yep. Some people might want to read a book. Some people might need to go mm-hmm. on vacation. But, but then the other thing is healthy self-care. Mm. You know, if I was going to the brewery next door every day right. after work, um, that might not be healthy self-care. It's self-care, but it's not healthy self-care. And so I guess my advice is be aware of that. If you're a survivor, obviously self-care, but also be aware of those, those who are walking alongside of you, the importance of their own self-care, because we need everybody working together on this. And when we lose people, whether it's through death or people just say, I'm burnt out, I'm done, we all lose. And so it's really, I guess I just keep emphasizing, just figure out what your self-care is and do it and be consistent at it. So true. I think that anybody who's doing this work is a giver and a caretaker. And so I think that maybe we struggle a little bit more with recognizing that and knowing, you know, it's not selfish. And even if it were, I don't care, like you need to do it because just like you said, you cannot effectively help other people unless you are truly taking care of yourself first. Okay. We always end the show with the same three questions. First question, what does courage mean to you? So I thought about this a little bit. I'm going to, I'm just going to read you two quotes. Um, This might be a cheap way out, but, but I I think they're really, really helpful to me. One is, is I think it's by Plato. It says courage is knowing what not to fear. And the other, which is by a gentleman that I have a lot of respect for since past Peter Gomes. And he was a, he was a preacher of a memorial church at Harvard for years Mm -hmm. And he said this quote, he goes, if the good Samaritan had indulged his fears, both of the dangers of the highway and of what others might think of his imprudent but compassionate behavior, he would have done nothing at all. Wow. Um, and I'm like, yeah, I mean, everybody knows the story of the good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. And what we do, what I do, there's, there's plenty of room for fear. Mm. Fear of the danger of what we do, fear of what other people think. But if we, if we indulge in that, we won't do anything. We become talkers, critics, yeah. but we won't do. And quite frankly, in the lives of the people that I'm privileged to walk alongside, they need doers to walk mm-hmm. alongside them, not just talkers. So that's, that would be my, that was sort of the, if you took courage and put it into action or give an example, uh, that quote really has spoken to me. I love that. I love putting those two together and how pertinent too, when you think about people within the church, having that courage, that's exactly the kind of courage they need to have to implement change. What is the best piece of advice you have ever received? Yeah, that's a hard one. I I, uh, (laughs) asked my wife this morning, I said, what do you, what what do you think? She goes, well, I think the best piece of advice I was given was to, to make, when you put the toilet roll on the toilet thing, (laughs) I'm like, yeah, that's actually really good advice. That is good. Uh, That is good. I don't know. I mean, again, I would, I'll go back to a, uh, a quote. Um, and I think this might've been another Gomes quote who I obviously really admire, but he said the, the last will be first and the first will be last, despite the fact that it is counterintuitive to our cultural presuppositions. It is invariably good news to those who are last and at least problematic news to those who see themselves as first. And I thought, man, that is, that encapsulates so much of the work I do is mm-hmm. we are we are walking alongside of those who have so oftentimes been, uh, especially by faith communities, relegated to being last. And I love these are the words of Jesus, the very one that these same faith communities profess to worship. And Jesus is saying, "The last will be first, 
and the first will be last, which is counterintuitive mm-hmm. in our culture of being strong. You got to get to the front and yep. we see so much, even in the church today, we're going to fight the culture and all this garbage. And to know that the words of Jesus are like, no, that's actually really good news to those who've been left on the side of the roads by the church. And it should be at the least problematic to those who are in the front thinking they're doing such mighty work for the wow. kingdom, because you're probably not. That's, that's awesome. I love that. I'm gonna have to read Peter Gomes. Yeah, he's um, good. <laughs> what is one question you wish more people would ask you? I thought about this too. And it hit me about 10 minutes before our conversation, especially from faith leaders and church leaders, this question, very simple. How is your client doing? Oh, wow. I, I wish, I wish people would ask those questions. I wish even the churches that I sue, when I go to a mediation, yeah. even without admitting liability, could you at least ask how my client's doing? Wow. I don't hear that enough. And quite frankly, I don't, I don't hear it ever from the institutions that I'm mm-hmm. going. And of course they've come up with excuse. Our lawyers said we can't talk about, like, like, forget the law. You're not, how about you're being a human being who's in the same room. Oftentimes this is during a mediation in the same room with somebody yeah. who's, who has come forward and disclosed being traumatized in ways we can't even describe and you can't even ask the question, how's your client doing? So yeah, that's the question I wish more Christians would ask. Well, you got me thinking that now because I don't, I can't think of one time ever either. Not one time. And I, I really, I was in a me- mediation uh, a couple of years ago. My client, I won't go to the whole story, but my client, young man had been sexually abused by a youth leader. His life from that moment on took a major downward trajectory on ways that were just awful. The fact that he was alive for our mediation mm-hmm. was difficult in and of itself. We get to this mediation and they have the lawyer, the, the insurance rep, and then the church representative, one of the leaders of, uh, at the church. And, you know, I, I said to her in the opening, I said, I'm just glad that you're here, glad the church has taken the time to be represented here and to hear from my clients. And, and maybe we can try to see if we can resolve this. And then my client spoke and, you know, just the horrors of it all. And that person never said a word, whether at that session or when we ended and we act, we did settle the case, never a word to come in and say, Hey, I just, I want to say, I'm sorry for what happened to you. I'm not even, I'm not even saying you have to accept blame. Right. How about I am so grieved over what happened to you. I mean, isn't that the, like the baseline of what Jesus would want us to do and say, instead she stood and hid behind her lawyer and the insurance rep. Yep. And I walked away happy we were able to resolve the case, but quite frankly, pissed off. Like, mm-hmm. wow. And you'll go to church on Sunday morning and worship Jesus and sing your worship songs. I don't want to hear that crap because mm-hmm. you, had a, you had a talk about a good Samaritan moment that was right. given to you and you walked away from it. So, yeah. How is your client doing would be a good start. I love that. And I think that for whatever reason, whatever their motivation, I don't think that a lot of, of the, you know, elders or whatever within these institutions have any idea how far that would actually go. Yeah. It's tremendous. Tremendous. Well, Boz, I am so grateful you came on today. It's been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for having been here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and uh and your dog behaved 
sort of. <laughs> I, I'm sort of feeling sorry for your dog of what happens after we finish this. I, well, I, will, being... re I will represent him for free. I promise. Thank you. She's being very quiet now, which is it's like a toddler. That's scary. Yeah. It um, doesn't matter what's going on. <laughs> right. But again, thank you so much. You know, I, I really see you as one of those few gems in the world who, you know, see a problem, you figure out how you can help and you dive right in. And we could sure use a hell of a lot more people like you in this world. And beyond that, you're definitely a talented and hardworking attorney. And we had so much fun at Kona Malad working with you on the cases that we've done. And we certainly hope that there will be more. I sure hope so too. I was, I was thinking as I was coming back from Indiana, I said, man, I want to work with this group again. So I, I, I have no doubt we will. I'm looking forward to that. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And I know that Greg and Dan will be really pleased to hear that yeah. too. And thank you to our listeners. Please continue to tune in and share this podcast with others. Please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.